Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, we've got a recap of the Olympic track and field events in the kick, and I was lucky enough to spend four days down in Rio, and I literally, before coming into the studio to record this show, watched Evan Yeager win a silver medal in the steeplechase. It was incredible. The whole week has been incredible. We'll round it up for you. We'll also take you out on the trail behind Runner's World HQ for a really intense and fairly sweaty look at why speed work really is worth all the suffering and also some advice on how to do it properly. But first, a conversation with marathoner Meb Kaflesky. At 41, Meb is the second oldest member of the U.S. track and field team after 5,000 meter runner Bernard Lagat. This will be Meb's fourth Olympics. When you win an Olympic medal, you don't go to sleep at all. Um, but people saw foreshadow my life. You know, my, my yearbook is full of people saying, see you at the Olympics, see you with uh, three, four medals and things like that. So you kind of reflect to those. On Sunday, Meb will run the men's Olympic marathon in Rio. It seems unlikely that he could medal again, but if we've learned anything, we should never count Meb out. Thanks for listening. Meb Kaplesky is the only athlete in history to win the New York City Marathon and the Boston Marathon and an Olympic medal. Impressive feats for someone who had never even run a mile until middle school. Meb is also just a flat-out great story, a great American story. He was born in Eritrea in the midst of the country's 30-year war for independence from Ethiopia. His father was a liberation supporter, which made him a potential target of the Ethiopian army. So when Meb was six, his father fled to Italy, sending money home until the whole family could afford to join him. Eventually, they did, and the family, by the way, Meb is one of 11 children, came to the United States from Italy as refugees when Meb was 12 years old. They landed in San Diego, where Meb still lives today. Meb became a naturalized American citizen in 1998, the same year he graduated from UCLA. In 2014, Meb helped turn the page on the Boston Marathon bombings by becoming the first American to win Boston since 1983, running a PR of 208.37 at age 38. This past April in Boston, Runner's World Senior Editor Scott Douglas had a conversation with Meb. Scott and Meb have a history. They co-wrote Meb for Mortals, How to Run, Think, and Eat Like a Champion Marathoner, which came out in 2015. Their friendship actually goes back to 2007 when they met at the Beach to Beacon 10K in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. In Meb's hotel room in Boston, they talked about the Olympics, about baseball, and about Meb's habit of seeking out and grabbing an American flag from a spectator in the final stretch of his marathons. As for the rest of the Kaflesky clan... All 11 children are incredibly successful in their own rights. There's a doctor, an engineer, and Meb's younger brother, Merhawi, is actually his agent. And you'll hear him in the background when Meb is telling a story about his first date with his soon-to-be wife, Jordanos. In August, you'll be running your fourth Olympics. Uh, But before we talk about that, I want to go through your other Olympic experiences, starting with 2000 in Sydney, Australia. Uh, you, it was your first Olympics. You're running the 10,000 final. 
biggest race of your life at that point. And you had a dis disagreement with your father before the start of the race. Absolutely. Sydney, Australia was in 2000 was my first Olympics. And, uh, you know, they had the prelim before the, uh, Friday and then Monday final. And uh, I was barely made the final. I had the flu that was going around the village. So I was walking to the, um, to the finals. My dad is like, you're going to win tonight. Like, Dad, I'm not going to win tonight, sir. No, don't think that way. You know, you must think positive. I'm like, Dad, I haven't broke to I just barely broke 28 minutes today, two days ago on, uh, on Friday and 27.58 probably at that. And he's like, well, you're going to win tonight. I'm like, no, I'm not going to win. But I hope to win, beat those guys, Haile and Paul Turgot. Haile Gabriel that is the world record holder at the time and defending Olympic champion and Paul Turgot from a world record holder. And silver medalist in 96 i'm like i can't compete with those guys those guys are a minute and a half faster than me i just hope i'm thinking i just hope that i didn't get lapped <laughs> but he's and i told him that maybe one day down the road i would like to challenge them but right now it's not the time so it was a tough moment to have a dialogue with the with your father uh he's saying you can't do things but at the same time you have to be very realistic uh, the sport just as that you know you can't uh, attain things overnight but through hard work and perseverance you can achieve your dreams eventually but not probably next week or that night uh, but you did lead early on in the race right why would you lead a race that you've already told your father you can't win as my good friend Abdi Abdurrahman would say I had the gold for one lap <laughs> if you're going to be in the Olympics you might as well lead once in a while because you know you're not going to be there at the end anyway so you're trying to make a name for yourself or you're trying to do just maybe warm up or you're going to go the same pace might as well be in the front instead of the back so it's just more a self-confidence thing you know but there have been other races where i'd led just to keep push the pace uh with other world championship other things but that time was probably hey um you know i think i can hang with those guys who just can't hang with them at the end if you look at the results from your race in 2000 you and abdi are the only ones who are still competing of the people who are in that race and Abdi is not competing at the level that you are now. Why, why are you still at it compared to all the people who were in that race that day? You know, I think, you know, Abdi might have to say something about that, <laughs> that I'm still competing, but he's still trying to do what he can. But it's just, I think, you know, Abdi and I are great friends and we are also, in a way, some different people in some sense because I tend to do the small details that make a big difference, and I'm not sure if he does those, so that would probably be the difference, but we both work hard, and we want to take the opportunities that we get with the horn and run away with it and try to, you know, try to do the best that we can every time. And What about, I'm curious, though, like the, the desire to still compete at the level that you are, because there are a lot of people who retire as elite athletes who are still f physically capable of being a world-class runner. And they, a lot of them will say, well, I, I no longer have that drive that I need to be the best. Why do you think that 16 years later, you're still that, you know, that interested in that level of racing? The desire and the drive that comes within us is all within ourselves. But Abdi and I kind of always talk stories and cherish the moments that we get here, the opportunities that United has provided us to be the excel. And some people might just say, hey, I'm done with this. I'm going to do something else. But for us, we, you know, running wise, it was by accident that happened to us. It wasn't like, oh, we came 
from Eritrea or Somalia to be runners. That wasn't the case. It was more like, okay, I remember people talk about Abdi when he first showed up their practice with his jeans and boots, you know, or for me, I'm like, I didn't know what the word of Olympics were. When I first introduced one seventh grade PE teacher, I said, you're going to go to the Olympics because of, I ran 520 miles, but it was more by accident trying to get a good grace and things like that. But so that drive still goes within ourselves and Obviously, we didn't train hard probably at the high school and love, uh, high school or collegiate level to maximize our potential. So there's still growth that to be made to be able to be the best, you know, running. And, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not running what we did in 2004 or 2005, 2007, but we're still at it trying to get to maximize our potential. So uh, your next Olympics then is 2004 Athens. Your first Olympic marathon is only the fourth marathon of your life and you won the silver medal so I was curious what gave you the confidence to run with the leaders from the start Paul Trigat the world record holder at the times in there one of the guys who you were up against four years ago and told your father I can't beat him today four years later you run with the leaders from the start and get the silver medal how how did you know that you were ready to do that running is the segments and increments that add, add up usually for a bigger showdown of a bigger picture and for me in 2000 I was fortunate enough to make the 10k team where I won the trials at a championship record and Cole Pepper beat me and uh, I was second uh, at, the, at the marathon but Coach Larson and I uh, my coach decided to talk about it for a long long time just to say okay what is the most prestigious events in the Olympics the 100 meter a, a mile and a marathon and to be in Athens where the Olympics started to run the original marathon and I'm in the US we haven't had a medalist since 76 or uh, you know not close to it so we got excited with that opportunity even though it was my fourth marathon ever so basically I just decided to change my training from a 10k to the marathon and focus on the marathon and give up my slot for Dayton Rittenheim to make his Olympic team and um, decided to focus on that and once the gun go, went off it was more hot hilly humid course uh, in Athens it's going to equalize bear in mind I was 10.03 was my best time which is over five minutes slower than Paul Turgot and many other guys that ran in that race but you know with the course been challenging it was going to equalize people and I said you know what I think I can run with them uh, it's a long course you got to be smart you got to be wise and we're you know we're hoping for a medal but at the same time just to be challenging there with the people to the podium it would be exciting and I got really start it was tactical race so I started from behind and worked my way up and um, basically Stefano Boldini had a phenomenal day I had a phenomenal day just had a better day and then the Lima who was tackled during the race and got got it together and finished bronze medal and uh, so yeah I mean but at the same time uh, I didn't take the risk that that I should have just because you know when I when I did my first marathon it was miserable where I don't want to do another one again because you know you don't have the the 204 guy behind you is can go to the bad patch and turn it on again so you have to play it a little bit conservative and you know in the last mile obviously I gave it all that I had and threw my hat away and tried to go for Stefano Boldino for the gold but he was having a phenomenal day and I ended up getting a uh, second place winning the silver medal which will give me a great pride to be able to bring a medal for our country and that goal was actually set before I left the stadium in 2000 at the Sydney Australia I said you know I said you know I'm, I'm happy to wear that USA jersey but next time around I want to be able to win a medal for our country but 
realistically, I was thinking more of a 10K mind frame versus a marathon in 2004, but it happened to be in a marathon. What happens after you win an Olympic medal? What, what are the next couple of days like? Do you hear from everybody? Do you hear from everybody you were in third grade with? Do you, do you go to sleep? <laughs> when you win an Olympic medal, you don't go to sleep at all. Um, but people saw foreshadow my life you know, my my yearbook is full of people saying, see you at the Olympics, see you with uh, three, four medals and things like that. So you kind of reflect to those. But uh, after after I won the silver medal in Athens, I had a previously set my schedule for, I think it was 450 flight and then uh, to go to, to, to go to flight to Germany and then Germany to DC and DC to Tampa. So what I did after I won the medal was I hand carried this bouquet that I got at the ward, go, went out for my first date with my wife here down. So that's what I did. And uh, people wanted those bouquet, but I said, you can have it until I get to, to the other land of the United States. And then I needed it back after that. And the flight attendant, they tried to put it, put in a vase and all that stuff really nicely. And I hand carried those for our first date. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, three kids later. <laughs> uh, it's, so your next Olympics, wasn't in 2008, but in 2012 in London. And everyone knows that you've won Boston. Everyone knows that you have an Olympic medal. Everyone knows you won New York City. Not a lot of people know that you were fourth in the Olympic marathon at age 37. And of those who do know that you finished fourth, not a lot probably know the story of how you finished fourth. You were, I think, 21st at one point, and we're about to drop, and we're thinking about dropping out because you were not having a good day. 2012 Olympics was pretty special because early on in my career in 2011, I went out without shoe contract for eight months. So I have to overcome a lot of adversity and people didn't think I had a shot of making the team at the age of 36. Um, but I ended up winning the trials at a personal best and Abdi and Ryan and myself were able to go to, to uh, London for the Olympics. and. During the race, I was up in the front. And in fact, before the start of the race, they didn't introduce me. I was the only probably medalist for, I know the only medalist, you know, from 2004, or maybe the only athlete probably from, to, you know, 2000 marathon runner in the field. But somehow, some way, they kind of overshadowed that. And I was like, well, I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to go into the front and show them <laughs> what I'm made of. And I went in the lead. It was fun. I was uh, having a good time. But then I had a cramp on my left side. I got the wrong fluid and I was having issue with my foot because of the cobblestones they have and in London and I was in 21st place halfway through and most people often ask me do you enjoy the scenery where I run and usually it's no because I'm c c thinking about my competitors but that day I think it was a cathedral in London I'm like this would be a good place to stop and I think it would be okay and then I just realized what I said at the press conference when I made the Olympic team was we're sending our best team and we hope to represent the United States the best that we can. So I just say, you know what? Stopping is an option. I had New York, New York City Marathon signed up, so I don't want to do any more damage to my body than I need to. And But then I realized, you know what? I got to get to that finish line. I'm wearing the USA jersey. I'm going to represent our country the best that I can. And then my daughters were watching the race, uh, even though they were young. I said, you know what? If I'm going to tell them to do their best, stopping in a race is not my best. So kept driving and uh, and on my book Metformortals I discuss about how 90% is mental 10% physical on on race day so I just changed my perspective basically it's like you know what I'm gonna get to that finish line think positive you're gonna get to that finish line no matter how many people pass me and then 
just basically dug deep and I prayed hard to be able to say, hey, get me, God, get me to that second group because I was in the third group right now and there was eight people there. If I could be one of them, I'd be super happy. If I could be two of them, I would be another happy man. And then all of a sudden I see, you know what? It's a race within a race. If I could just beat those group of runners here that are eight, I would be happy. And then all of a sudden with 5K to go, Coach Bob Larson, who's my mentor now, has pointed out six fingers and I wasn't sure I was right next to the Japanese. If the Japanese was in sixth place or I was in sixth place, he didn't clarify, he just pointed six fingers. And and I see this uh, gr- uh, uh, green jersey way ahead. And I said, you know, if that place is in fourth place and the Japanese is in fifth, I'm in sixth. For whatever reason, if somebody gets caught at, for allegation, drugs or whatever, that fourth place is going to move to bronze and I'm going to move to fourth place. I'm like, uh-uh, this is not going to happen. So I just... Doug Deep, there was an American guy that shouted in the crowd. I love interacting crowd. He's like, you can get that guy in one kilometer to go. He said, you can get that guy. I kind of nodded my head and acknowledged that I got his message. Charging hard. And then with 500 meter to go, I see, uh, I passed the, the Santos, who was a Brazilian who won New York City Marathon. Good friend of mine. I just told him, good job. And then I stopped chugging away. And there's a picture of us with a 500 meter sign in between us, me in the lead, him and right behind me and uh, the 500 meter sign to go on in between us. And I'm like, but I was sprinting, I was sprinting as hard as I can. And then I see, I gotta get the United States flag. I gotta get the United States flag. I, I wasn't sure to grab it or not because I didn't see that where the finish line was, was such a small line. And I'm like, you know what? I grabbed the flag and then I wanted to run over my top of my head. But I'm like, you know what? The guy was trying to catch me again. And I'm like, tucked it under my arm, just kept chugging, kept chugging, trying to go. And then I saw the finish line and I ended up getting fourth place. And uh, so that 90% mental came really handy. And, you know, sometimes not about winning gold, silver, bronze, but getting the best out of yourself against all odds or adversity to overcome. And that gave me a boost of confidence for the future that 99% was sure that that was going to be my last Olympics. Now that 1% chance came true and I'm going to Rio. Do other elites, do you know if other elites uh, hear what's yelled at them from the crowd and do they like it or are you unique in that? <laughs> you know, elite athletes, I'm pretty sure they hear their names, but I'm unique in that because I know I've been in uh, at the Dallas Marathon for the uh, Duo to Rio kind of relay and everybody was screaming my name. It's like, we're not a ghost, you know. I remember it was Cham Chalinga saying, hey, we have names tagged too, you know, you can do whatever. So I get energy out of it. And, you know, sometimes when they're shouting or clapping, you kind of take analysis of what's going on. If they chat, if the claps are going continuously, you know, you're close together. If there's a gap in between, you know, that you have enough room. So you have to use those analytical things, you know, or you see a person uh, peripheral vision across in the street and you see okay you got enough gap when you're trying to get away from people so you use those things and elements that are in the roads to be able to engage but no i've been very fortunate uh, especially after the boston win many people have been cheering me on over the years so if a listener is going to be in rio to watch you what do you want them to yell at you from the side if i'm spectators that are in rio what i like to hear from them is you know sometimes the 10 seconds of the leader or five seconds of the leader or just say, you know what, you, you're doing a great job representing the United States. Go USA. That gives you a boost of energy because, you know, there's Americans cheering for you. And, uh, you know, so those things or drop the arms. You know, for me, I kind of when I get tired, I kind of have the tendency to carry my arms too high. So relax the arms or just relax your face. Those things sometimes would take it when it gets really challenging. You, you kind of you go back to, you know, 
uh, tighten yourself, which you shouldn't be. And so that's why occasionally I shake my hands and things like that. But any words that, that are positive, I enjoy them. How high can someone who's 40, who will be 41 uh, on race day? What do you think will happen in Rio? I think the possibilities are there. I mean, it was two years ago that I won the Boston Marathon at a personal best, and I shouldn't be too much out knocked off of that you know even the age is every year i don't say i lost this much or gained this much every year it shouldn't be such a drastic moment i the hardest part for me is to stay healthy if i can stay healthy and consistent training i should run where i have run in the past and you know i can't stop playing defense from other guys having the race of their lifetime or depends what tactics they use if they go out 102 or 103 and then i might be in trouble to be honest but at the same time you know, it's going to be in Rio, which is going to be hot and humid and it's not hilly anymore. But uh, I look forward to that challenge. And hopefully if I can finish in the top 10, I'd be very happy. If I finish top three, be ecstatic and nothing can top it off the Boston victory. But if a victory comes around, I'll take it with an open arm. 2016 is not just an Olympic year, but U.S. presidential year. And in the campaign, there's been a lot of talk about immigration. Curious what you would like people to think when someone who was born in Eritrea puts on the U.S. uniform for the fourth time. You know, for me, it's a great honor to be representing the United States, but I also never forget my roots. My parents always taught us, you know, don't forget your roots, who we are. And and I take pride in being born in Eritrea, and I take pride in wearing that USA jersey. Every time I put it on, is is representing, you know, the immigration reform it can be difficult and at times challenging, but there's rules to be followed and as long as we follow those and we sh- and we are positive contributors to society and the United States is you know the land of immigrants and we are one way or another our ancestors have come through here whether it's three generation four generation or two generation or my first generation here coming as long as we are positive contributors to society I think is a wonderful thing and you know it gives us opportunity to be educated if it wasn't for the People in the United States helping me and my family assimilate to the country. They've been mentors that help us be the best that we can. And and myself, you might know about me, but all my brothers and sisters have been part of contributors to society, and and we feel proud of that. You've done a lot of cool things. Um, one thing that a lot of people might think is one of the coolest is throwing out the first pitch at Fenway. Uh, I have, I have a couple of curiosities about that. Did you practice? Um, I didn't practice for the Fenway first pitch, uh, Red Sox, Yankees game. Um, but I did did my first practice with my buddy, Rich Levy, who paces me on the bike before my first one in 2012 at the Padres game in San Diego. But after that, since then, I haven't really practiced. I just, I've done five pitches so far. But I was definitely nervous when I won the Boston Marathon. I went to New York for press conferences, came back for that day, just do the first pitch, enjoy the game. I'm like, oh my gosh, this uh, Boston is sports fanatic. So I better be able to make it. And I was glad to make it. But I was, I celebrate like I won the marathon, but because I made it through. So that was important to me. Do they time your pitch? No, they don't time your pitch. I don't think they do, but uh, they just want to make sure to just make sure you make it there and not roll it. So, <laughs> or bounce. They don't want to bounce. It makes you catchable. And I'd rather just. I think I'd rather overthrow it than <laughs> than bounce it. So that's. Uh, but I. I mean, I. I didn't grow up playing baseball, but I grew up aiming uh, at a you know stack rocks on top of each other and then try to take them down with a small rock. So I had a little background with that. That's my childhood. <laughs>
That was Olympic marathoner Meb Kopleski with Runner's World Scott Douglas. Meb will compete in the men's Olympic marathon this Sunday, August 21st. As for what's next for Meb after Rio, well, we will just have to wait. When we asked Scott if he knew anything, he responded, quote, I do know his plans, but am sworn to secrecy. I can say he's not retiring after the Olympics and isn't planning to run New York City this fall. So I guess we'll find out. In the August issue of Runner's World, columnist Mark Ramey talks about how, for many runners, speed work feels about as good as going to the dentist. He writes, they both involve discomfort and sometimes pain. Because of this, you don't exactly look forward to either of them. Still, you know they're important. Okay, so what is it that makes speed work so important? Bud Coates knows the answer. He is the training director here at Runner's World. He leads the weekly noontime speed session on the Rodale campus. Our producer, Brian Dalek, talked to Bud to find out just what are the benefits of enduring a little pain. Every Wednesday here at Runner's World, we have a weekly interval workout. Anyone can show up, and our staff coach, Bud Coates, he'll put you through your paces no matter what level you are. We're so lucky to have Bud on staff. He's a 213 marathoner and a four-time qualifier for the U.S. Marathon Olympic Trials, so he knows what he's doing. One Wednesday this summer, I headed out to the trail behind our offices here at Runner's World to watch Bud conduct a workout. How are you doing, anyway? Uh, good. I wanted to know what makes interval training, sometimes called speed work, so important for all runners. Two runners ended up doing this week's workout with Bud. My co-workers Kit Fox and Derek Call came out, and Bud immediately started joking with them about their outfits. Their shirts and shorts nearly matched. The uh, Wrigley Spearmint Twins. Yeah. I dress like the boy, he dressed like the girl. Yep. After a one-mile warm-up, everyone gets down to business. Derek is specifically getting ready for the Chicago Marathon in October, and Kit is also getting ready for his fall races. Knowing where they are early in their training schedules, Bud announces the workout for today. Six 800-meter, or half-mile, repeats. Many people affectionately call these Yasso 800s after our very own Bart Yasso. Before they get started, Bud has a really important reminder for Derek and Kit. It's the key to interval workouts and maybe the key to getting faster overall. Keep it in. Erring, erring on the slow side early on is better than on the fast side. To go fast, you have to monitor your speed early on. Okay. More on that in a right. minute. Let's go. Now, many people do speed workouts like this on a track, and that's great because it's easy to know your distance. Behind our offices, we don't have a track, but a packed cinder path that loops for about a mile. There are some really small uphills and downhills, but it's easy to break up the workout to hit varied distances. So Derek and Kit get set, and Bud gives the signal for the first 800. Speed work can be intense, especially if it's new to you. I asked Bud earlier that morning, how does he sell runners on doing speed workouts for the first time? How does he not scare them? 
I lie. <laughs> um, to a certain degree, that, that's true. Um, what I tell the person who's coming for the first time is not to worry. Um, we've got a lot of different um, levels out there. We'll, you know, you'll, you'll find somebody to run with. Uh, you'll make mistakes. I'm not going to have you do an entire workout right off the bat. I'm probably going to cut you short. Bud says everyone, whether your goal is a 5K, half marathon, or full, can find an interval workout that'll make them faster. That's because interval workouts are hard runs alternated with recovery periods. You run quickly for a set time or distance, then you slow down to recover before you do another hard effort. And you repeat that cycle for as many times as you need to to complete the workout. The main goal is to keep consistent times for each hard effort. So, depending on your experience or the race you're training for, maybe you run 200 meters hard on a track and jog 200 meters for recovery. You could repeat that six or eight times. After you're comfortable with that, you can build to a quarter mile or a half mile or even a mile-long interval depending on your goals. You could even just run hard based on time, running for 60 to 90 seconds hard. Because the idea of interval training, again, is race assimilation. It's teaching you to become um, comfortable running at a faster pace. What you don't want to do is become comfortable in slowing down. The not slowing down part is key. You're teaching your body to run at consistently faster speeds than you're used to, and that will translate to your next race. If your pace for each hard run and recovery keeps dropping 5 to 10 seconds, it could be time to call it a day. But if you hit your paces, it could lead to many benefits, like improved running form, better endurance, fat burning, and mental toughness that you can get through a hard workout. Plus, as we do in our own backyard, intervals can be done just about anywhere by using maybe the GPS on your wrist or by knowing the distances around your streets. There, there are coaches that have never taken their athletes to tracks. They just go out and you run for X number of minutes. You run from this tree to that tree. Um, it's all in how you're able to repeat the effort. But as Bud mentioned before, there's one thing you want to keep in mind with any speed workout. Just like in a race, if you start too fast, you're risking the downfall. The, the funniest comment that I've heard, you know, hundreds of times for people that run the marathon um, is that I really didn't think I was going out that fast. I felt so good, you know, at, you know, the first mile, the second mile. Well, when you're running 26 miles, you should feel good at two miles and three miles. Back out on the trail on a hot summer day, Derek and Kit are pushing the edge of their pace midway through their workout. Okay, so that's as fast as you want to run. For the first few 800s, Kit and Derek are committing the classic interval mistake of going out too fast. 92. Little quick. It is the downhill portion, though. Coach Bud points out things like their form. Arms look good, just keep your shoulders nice and relaxed. And notices Kit is more chasing Derek than running his own workout. It's all right, Kit. Stay there, don't try to chase him down. Bud, the diligent coach, gently tells them what's up after four of the six 800s. Each time they're coming in just a little bit slower. 313, all right, what's the order? What am I about to say? 
slow the first quarter down. He's going out fast, and yeah. you're staying the same distance behind him, so you're both going out too fast. <laughs> okay? All right, let's relax. Because you're starting to slow down more in the second quarter yeah. than you were early on. Okay. On the recovery period between intervals, I wanted to hear how they were doing, so I jogged alongside them and checked in. First, Derek. I don't think I've done this since my senior year of college back in the fall of 2007. And I'm surprisingly keeping up. I'm sure this is gonna hurt during that two o'clock meeting today though. Kid, how, how are you feeling? No, Derek's gonna tie me to a rope and drag me. I've been keeping it pretty even, but these last two may be a bit of a struggle. We're gonna see how this goes. We're rounding the corner to start. Again, and as you can hear, I'm still a little out of breath. I wait with Bud again on the fifth one, and he gives them both the harsh truth. They've slowed down too much, missing their intended paces. Okay, so we slowed 10 seconds in between quarters. So we should either stop or really run the first quarter or the next one slow. How are we doing? I'm feeling okay. I always start fast. But I was thinking I'm, about yeah. staying relaxed. Somehow I went faster. <laughs> Bud is giving him a crack at this last one, but he's going to try something first. He tells yeah, Kit to start first with a 10 second okay. head start over Derek. Oh, so we're switching it up here. His goal is that Kit won't try to keep yeah, pace good. with anyone but himself, reading his own internal engine. Kit is happy about this. So here's a good lesson about intervals. If you're screwing them up, just blame your partner. It's all your fault, Derek. And for all the ribbing, Bud's switch ends up working. By letting Kit go first, they both kept a better pace on the first half of the last 800. Just by changing the last half, they're thinking about completely different things than they thought about over the first five. And even to my untrained eye, it's not just their pace that's improved. Kit maybe looks a little more fluid on this one than the last one, because maybe because he's leading. Well, he started out, you know, about three or four seconds slower in that first 400, so that helps. And you're right, um, when you're leading, and you know, he, he doesn't really want to get run down by a, a staff worker. So, 314 and a half, 15. All right, so that's pretty even. That was right. good. So Thanks, that, that was much better, you know, um, and we'll work on it, get those paces down. Because as the intervals get longer, going out too quick is, sucks. <laughs> I've been there. Yep. Well, thanks, bud. Yeah, yep. thank you, you bud. Bet. All right. Can I have a good day? After Bud headed back to his office in the gym, I caught Kit and Derek following their cooldown. I started with Kit. And what brought you out to do speed work today? Um, well, part of it was just the gloriousness that is Bud Coates, um, the man, the myth, the legend. Kit loves the ease of training with Bud at work, like we all do. That doesn't mean it's always easy. Kit actually recalls a rough interval outing with Bud last year. Oh yeah, it was like August of last year. We were doing an 800 and I threw up halfway through. Oh. Um, I think I had too much water. I chugged water like right before and kept having it and just was feeling really thirsty. And it was, I think it was like in the upper 80s, low 90s that day, pretty humid. And I also started out the first couple too fast, but I was feeling off. So 
I don't think anybody saw me. It was around the backside, so I just let some, some spew go and then ran up and told Bud he was like, you're done. <laughs> and despite those lovely memories, Kit knows these workouts help him get faster. Derek, on the other hand, is back in the game when it comes to speed work. Derek is gunning for a Boston qualifying time this fall in Chicago, and he knows if he wants that, he has to do some new things. Intervals just have gotten away from me. I hated them in college, hated them in high school. You know, once you're post-collegiate and you're on your own, if it's your choice between a six-mile jog or a day at the track, I'm going to take the nice, breezy jog 10 times out of 10. Interval training is challenging, no doubt about it. But if you want to be a better runner overall, and if you want to go faster at just about any distance, it could be the missing ingredient in your training. You hate it when you're doing it, but you wait that week or so, and you get that extra kick in your step, and you realize, oh, those 40 minutes of hell have gotten me this far. I have done plenty of those Wednesday afternoon speed sessions, and trust me, they work. For more links to Speedwork Strategies, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. And for information about training for any event, whether it's a 5K or 10K or half marathon or marathon, even an ultra, you can find Coach Bud Coates' training plans at runnersworld.com slash training plans. Now it's time for The Kick with Brian Dalek and Kit Fox, who fortunately have stopped sweating from their speed workout. Okay, Kit, we're back for The Kick this week. Thanks for coming down. And we have a lot to talk about with the Olympics. I mean, there are probably too much to talk about, so we're just going to hit the highlights. It's the best time of every four years. And really, before we get started, should be watching track all the time if you're enjoying this, not just during the Olympics. Yeah, let's let's raise up that there are other track meets throughout the year. <laughs> yeah, so jumping right in on the first day of the women's 10,000 meters, Almaz Ayana of Ethiopia, she got things going with a bang in, in what was really a fast race overall. Yeah, I want to start by saying that I think the folks in Brazil need to measure that track because yeah. um, throughout the past few days we've witnessed some incredible feats, but this tops, I think, the list of 14-second world record. And let's not forget that the rest of the field had a historically great race. Eight women set their national, respective national records, including, shout out to Molly Huddle, broke the American record, which yeah. is just running amazing. A, running a 30-13-17. Um, Sarah Lords butler down in Rio actually caught up with Molly, um, had, you know, had some thoughts on how that race was for her the day after. When you're racing women this fast and you go through 5K under 15 minutes, try not to panic and just get a great time out of it. So um, it was, uh, yeah, it was unlike any 10K I've ever run as far as just feeling like uh, it, like the splits just didn't make sense to my, in my head, even my own splits. So um, I tried not to panic. Yeah, okay. uh, I tried to just grind it out. So congratulations to Molly on the American record. She finished sixth overall in that race. But now on to Saturday, big race was the men's 10,000. Yes, and it really was an expected finish with kind of some unexpected turns in the middle. Yeah, the middle is where exactly. like, a lot of the fun happened. Yeah, Britain's Mo Farah, of course, he is 
uh, just running incredible right now. You know, he took home the gold medal, but what was in kind of a great show of sportsmanship in the middle of the race, his teammate Galen Rupp mm-hmm. actually tripped him up. So, yeah. so it can- almost looked like a push in the back. So if you didn't like, if you weren't aware of it, it looked like, whoa, what's going on here? Yeah, so Galen does this, and I think in his head is just saying, like, oh, crap. I just cost my teammate a back-to-back gold medal, possibly. So Mo pops right back up, gives a little thumbs up. Galen slowed up to make sure he was okay. They continued on with the race. Mo does what he does, outkicks in the last 400. Um, Galen was a little disappointed with himself. He took fifth overall, which, um, of course, is worse than he did in 2012 with that silver medal. Yeah, so Mo wins that gold in 2705.17. So that was a big event on Saturday night. That led into Sunday morning with the women's marathon. Now, the winner overall, Jemima Samgong, she was the first Kenyan ever to win the women's marathon. She did that in 224.04. The big news on the American side was how well all three of the U.S. runners finished. All right. I'm going to voice my support for scoring this race like mm-hmm. they do in cross country. Yeah, team team scores. Yeah, team scores because America would have taken home the gold. This is the best that American team, both male or female, has done in like 40 years. We had um, Shalane Flanagan taking sixth, Desi Linden taking seventh, and Amy Craig snuck in there and took ninth. So an amazing performance by the Americans. So that was the marathon Sunday night. We we got a little faster on the track. Yeah, again, Brazilian officials, we really need to measure this track (laughs) because um, just another unprecedented world record in the men's 400 meters. South Africa's Wade Van Nykerk crushed a 17-year-old world record. This was held by American Michael Johnson at uh, 43.18. Van Nykirk runs a 43.03 from lane 8, which just... Not seeing anybody the whole race, just going full out. And from lane 8 just doesn't happen. It was amazing uh, to watch. And this happened, of course, right before what was supposed to be the biggest highlight of the night, and Mm -hmm. maybe was um, Usain Bolt takes the track, 100-meter final. Again, does what Usain Bolt does. He wins. Yeah, he won 9.81. One of the best photos of the games is him looking to his left and the photographer capturing him smiling right before the finish line. Yeah, that was actually in one of the semifinal heats, but just was like a a precursor of what was to come. He becomes the first athlete to win 300-meter gold medals in three consecutive Olympics. And he'll be going for gold in the 200 later this week as well. And, you know, quickly on Monday, um, two American athletes take bronze. Yes. uh, Big stories, both of them. Let's start with Emma Coburn. Throws in an amazing performance. She set the American record in the 3,000-meter steeplechase. She ran a 907.63 to take bronze. This is the first time that a female American has won a steeplechase medal, which is just huge props to Emma Coburn. Yeah, congratulations to her. And then the 800, kind of an unexpected bronze medalist there. Yeah, Clayton Murphy takes the bronze. He was, uh, wasn't was necessarily a favorite. Uh, you know, all the stories were about Boris Berrien, but Murphy just ran basically the race of his life. It was a personal best. Um, and you can actually read more about him. We wrote about him. He uh, actually was raised on a pig farm yeah. and now is a Olympic bronze medalist. So congrats to Clayton. 
but you know, this means a lot of finals are still to come for the Olympics. Uh, so, what are what what are the big events to watch out for in the last weekend? Yeah. So let's start with Friday. Women's five thousand meters is going to be on the track again. Return of Almaz Ayana um, coming back. You know, we could see some double gold by her. Exactly. Some spectacular things. Saturday, just tune in start to finish. It's all finals. <laughs> it's going to be crazy. We've got men's 1500 finals, women's 800, men's 5000 meters. That, again, Mo. Mo's going to be back. And on Sunday, always the last event of the Olympics, we have the men's marathon. Galen Rupp making his Olympic marathon debut. Mm-hmm. We also have, of course, Meb Kaflesgi coming back and Jared Ward. So... Wake up early, get some coffee. Yeah, and definitely follow us online, runnersworld.com slash Olympics, and on our Facebook and on Twitter. We're up to date every day on everything that's happening. Brian, we're laser-focused on the Olympics right now. Mm -hmm. But I think, I'm not sure, but I think there are other people running outside of Rio de Janeiro. There are some other running stories outside of Rio. Okay, what do we have got? Well, we have one. It's a really, like, nice story of this 12-year-old. His name is Marcellus Coleman. Now, he ran the Gary Bjorklund Half Marathon back in June. Um, he ran a 2.16.28, and that in itself, you know, great time for a 12-year-old. Marcellus is currently living at Northwood Children's Services. It's a residential facility in Duluth. He, a few years ago, had to leave his family for unsafe circumstances. And since then, he's started doing therapy programs revolving around running. So, like, how's running helping him out? So within this group, children like Marcellus, they might have anxiety, they might have depression, and so their counselor, Dan Hurley, he begins this organized group, and he's noticed that since starting it, you know, a little bit ago, that they're bringing the aggression down. So he just judges it by instances of aggression, and they've gone from maybe 50 total in a month to, like, less than 10. So that's helped him. And then, in a sense... Through running, he's, you know, enjoying things a little bit more. And now, Marcellus, his big goal, besides maybe doing another race, is to, you know, get adopted soon. And it'd be even better if, you know, that family had a dog. That's that's what he told our reporter, Allison Wade. And a you know, nice transition there because the story I've got, one of my favorites over the past week, has to do with dogs. Um, so it's we're wrapping up the summer training season for mm-hmm. cross-country runners. Uh, they're about to start school again. They've gone through this hard cycle. And out in uh, Santa Barbara, California, there was a cross-country team whose coach uh, kind of had the idea to partner with a local animal shelter. Mm-hmm. It was the um, Santa Barbara Community Animal Shelter. And what they did is just on an easy day for these runners, they surprised them and had them run with some of these shelter dogs. So great for the kids. They got to hang out with dogs yeah, all day. It's, it's, changed. it's like when NFL training camps, they do something different. They go bowling for the day. It, these cross-country kids, they're, they're going – getting to run with dogs for a change, and that just breaks up the workouts. And, of course, there's adorable video to go along with this. And I think my favorite moment is one of the one of the smaller dogs, his name was Fred, uh, kind of refused to run. So the cross-country runner's <laughs> just, just holding Fred, and Fred kind of just encapsulates all of us, I think. <laughs> On these hot summer days when we don't want to do anything. Yeah, so Fred's not adopted yet either. As Th- of don't right now, don't so. tell that to my wife because now she will want to go to California and adopt this dog. Mora, you have my permission <laughs> to go get Fred. Well, on that note, Kit, I, I'm going to wrap up the kick this week because I might have to go home and start looking up dogs to adopt. 
Sounds great, Brian. Thanks. That's it for this week's show. I hope you enjoy this final week of the Olympics and be sure to join us next week when we talk with the creators of Another Mother Runner. You won't want to miss it. I'm Runner's World Editor-in-Chief David Willey. The show was produced this week by Sylvia Ryerson, Mervyn Deganos, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. The Runner's World Show is part of the Panoply Network. Thanks for joining us.